Hello, and welcome to episode 33 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, a venture partner at Griffin Gaming Partners, one of the leading gaming-focused VC firms, and content acquisition lead at Andreessen-backed Carry First, the leading African mobile games publisher. Today, I'm happy to introduce my next guest, Sean Faust, a serial entrepreneur with more than a decade of experience in the gaming industry, and the co-founder and COO at Fortis Games. What's going on, Sean? Hey, Chris. How's it going? Good. Thank you. Glad to have you here. So just to get started, you know, you've obviously been in the industry for a while. But for those folks who are less familiar with you and your background, uh, do you mind just taking us through your background, specifically in the time before you started Fortis? Yeah, it's been a bit of a journey. Right? Mm -hmm. I started this thing with hair. You guys can't see this, but... Uh... <laughs> A great tragedy has occurred over the last five or six years on that front. You know, originally, I didn't really expect to go into the game industry. It was mm -hmm. always a lifelong passion, a thing that I did that was meaningful to me, that I cared a lot about. It was mm -hmm. always my community growing up. But I went to law school to be a lawyer and mm -hmm. not a video game lawyer, which wasn't really a thing back when I started out. Yeah. I first went to a firm called Shepard Mullen, directly out of law school, graduated from UVA and joined their entertainment group through, I don't know, some 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 magic that, <laughs> that occurred. I'm not quite sure how I ended up with that job. But once I was there, the firm was pretty entrepreneurial. It was during the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. So things were kind of grim in 08, 09. And they were pretty supportive of me exploring the possibility of building up a games team that mm -hmm. would kind of focus on you know, games related work, which at the time was sort of viewed as like a niche industry. Mm -hmm. And I did that and it went really well. Everything was going great. I was building a book of business with clients I really liked, I really enjoyed. And I think the future was never brighter, which was why I decided to leave, you know, and joined one of my clients at the time a company called Booyah that just raised like a large amount of money mm -hmm. to kind of be in a general counsel plus you know, kind of head of business development and from Booyah I went on eventually to a company called Court Games originally mm -hmm. named Play Mesh and I had a similar role there but transitioned into products while I was there this was like very early mobile era mm -hmm. and so you know what a mobile game designer was, was probably not well known. And I guess, mm -hmm. uh, you know, everyone was pretty open. The CEO at the time, a guy named Eric Pank was you know, kind of like a very thoughtful, interesting person to like interact with, banter with, and we started talking about design. And over time, I just ended up doing more design and product work, mm -hmm. um, eventually became the head of product and eventually the CEO of that company, eventually exited that company machine zone joined machine, uh, machine Zone for a you know, short period of time and then moved on to create a company called PlexJat, mm -hmm. which yeah, I'm sure we'll get into at some point. Yeah. But eventually I sold that company, PlexJat, to Warner Brothers the same day they were acquired by AT&T, mm -hmm. which was you know about three years at Warner Brothers mm -hmm. and then left Warner Brothers to found Fortis. Awesome. So, you know, just going back to the beginning, right, you mentioned in your lawyer days, you know, gaming was relatively niche, you know, but it was something you were passionate about. If you were to look out, you know, I'm sure at the time you did, where did you see the gaming industry going? Like, was this something that you pursued because of your views on the prospects of the business? Or was it purely out of your passion for games? 
There are sort of a few interlocking factors. The mm -hmm. first was I was in the entertainment group at Shepard and Shepard already represented most of the movie studios. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to like think about building a book of business, it was going to be challenging given the coverage that the right. firm already had, right? It was a really well-known entertainment group. And so I, I asked myself, you know, where, where might I have like an edge? Where might I be able to build like a genuine side of relationships, not just because I was interested in the legal work, but I was mm -hmm. also interested in, you know, the people and the, the company, you know, the companies and what they were building. And video games is perfect for that. Mm -hmm. I, I've never stopped being a pretty diehard gamer. Yeah. And so having a lawyer kind of wander into a pitch meeting to try to pitch for services and have that lawyer start by just having kind of like a comprehensive <laughs> interest in what you're building, I think just made people feel like more at ease. Normally mm -hmm. when you're talking to a lawyer, you're not super enthusiastic mm -hmm. about it, right? You think it's going to be expensive. You don't, you know, everyone's told you you need them. You don't really yeah. know what they're going to do and why they're going to be good or not good. And so having someone who really cared, I think made a big difference. Did I think that games were going to explode outward in the way that they've had? Not particularly. Mm -hmm. I, I knew that the internet had opened up the number of people that were playing games, but the idea that it would go from what is maybe more of like an isolated community in the mm -hmm. 90s to sort of like, I've got a 10 year old daughter now and she plays and mm -hmm. all of her friends play and it would be weird not to play. Yeah, That's a pretty massive shift. Not one that I was really planning on, mm -hmm. but I caught the timing on pretty well. Like I moved into it right when mobile and social games mm -hmm. were just coming around. Yeah, no, I think it's awesome. You know, it's something that you hear a lot, both like gaming investors and gaming entrepreneurs and just people in the gaming industry in general. That still is something that unites a lot of folks. You know, now that the, the industry's gotten larger, there definitely are some folks, you know, who are probably more motivated by like business stuff. But I think for the most part, you know, there are a lot of people who are just like passionate, lifelong gamers like you and and like myself. You know, I've been gaming since I was literally as young as I can remember. And I'm still a big gamer today. But what are some of the games you're playing today? I play a lot of games. In general, I spend most of my PC gaming time on independent games. Mm -hmm. I play a lot off of like itch.io and off of Steam. If it has a roguelike tag, I have played it. <laughs> uh, you know, it, and I've played it probably extensively. Mm -hmm. uh, so games like Binding of Isaac or like smaller ones like Backpack Hero. I just bought this game, Raven's Watch, who just kind of came out in soft launch in the last like few weeks. Mobile side pretty much anything that gets into the top grossing mm -hmm. I, I get interested in and I want to understand why it's there. I played a lot at Genshin Impact. You know, like that one was definitely a a sink of time and resources, but really was really impressed by what Mihoyo had put together there. Pretend to be pretty omnivorous when it comes to like genres mm -hmm. and things like that. Really anything that does something new in the industry, I tend to be interested in. And, you know, in my spare time, such as it is, I tend mostly towards roguelites mm. and mobile games as the, the primary pastime. I think I, on the mobile side, I think I probably put 5,000 hours into Summoner's War during oh, the course wow. of playing that game. So <laughs> for me on mobile, Fire Emblem Heroes, I was playing for a long time as far yeah. as like a relatively less casual game. But honestly, I play a lot of more casual games, a lot of like merge, at least for mobile yeah. on PC console, you know, I'm pretty much the opposite. I'm like very, very hardcore. Yeah. I was always a big Halo player, uh, still playing Halo actually surprisingly, but yeah.
Did you get into Destiny at all? I didn't because I was so often like focused on like one game. Like I, I spent so many hours like playing just Halo or for a while I was playing a lot of just Overwatch. And I also typically have tended to multiplayer PvP games almost exclu- exclusively for a PC console. Yeah, I played League for a very long time, all the way from its beta onward. And, you know, it is tough to maintain that hobby with a child involved. Uh, So (laughs) Yeah, games like League and Valorant, like for me personally, I just haven't hopped on just because I'm very competitive and the skill ceiling is like already so high. And I don't have a history of playing those games. You know, I'm a uh, controller player so Valorant is just like a non-starter for me and then for League you know that game's been out forever so there's just no chance I can compete with the top folks um, anyways <laughs> going back to um, Plex Chat you know we mentioned it before um, it's it's really interesting because if you think of like you know the timing of it you know I'll let you dive into that and then obviously like where the sort of messaging for gaming space is today, you know, obviously there's one very large company that is the one that most people think of. So just curious, like how the space has evolved from your time at Plex Chat to today. And what did the landscape look like back then when you were starting Plex Chat? You know, if, if you didn't sell Plex Chat, where do you think it might fit in today? So to answer your last question first, mm-hmm. I sold Plex Chat because I didn't think it fit in. Mm. Ultimately, the opportunity that I identified was effectively Slack for gamers. Mm. Like I thought that chat rooms were going to be a bigger part of the community ecosystem mm-hmm. than people considered. That the current, you know, sort of the, the people that were out in the ecosystem at the time, like like Discord was going after TeamSpeak, right? Mm-hmm. It was more, much more like focused on voice. And I was like, yeah, that's that's interesting. I actually don't think that's the thing. I think mm-hmm. chat rooms are the thing, and here are the reasons why. And chat rooms that are based off of roles and hierarchy, those are the things that are going to kind of dominate because Slack relies on the degree of knowledge and yeah. knowing people in order for it to function. It doesn't work well in anonymous spaces. Anonymous chat is, mm-hmm. is I think, the next community platform. And that was the pitch. And I'd say within like two, three months, Discord pivoted to be a lot more, not pivoted, but extended to be a lot more into chat. And I think they pretty much fully occupied what I thought was the niche that was like an exciting place to be. I think they saw some things that I didn't see. I was really focused on the mobile side of the equation Mm -hmm. as the bigger opportunity. And I think Jason, CEO of Discord, like timed it better in that saw PC and Twitch as like the thing to build mm-hmm. on top of, and then has extended over into mobile over time. He's just like a really strong entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Like I think he just pulls apart the puzzles really well. So as time went on, I was like, okay, maybe there's something that's like more explicitly oriented towards mobile only. And so mm-hmm. we started to shift some of the product towards like, hey, like what does a really full featured ex- a mobile experience look like? And I didn't see it being meaningfully enough differentiated to accomplish the things that I wanted. And also during that window, mobile didn't have a lot of major releases. Like Pokemon Go came out like a little bit too early. Like we Mm -hmm. weren't ready. We're just around for a few months when it came out. And then there was like this long drought of big breakout hits. Brawl Stars came out just after we we exited the company. Mm -hmm. And so for me... That entire window is sort of like an education and like the value of timing. Like I had mm-hmm. had that idea for, I don't know, years, like yeah. four or five years. I'd been thinking about like, 
where is the AOL chat room? Uh, you know, like, because that was where I had grown up. That was where, like, my community was yeah. in the 90s. And I think there are more opportunities now that exist in community than when I exited mm-hmm. Flexshot, you know, because we're five years on now. But I tend to think that Discord is, like, likely to dominate that particular space mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future. I think things that are like group hangouts and joint watching sessions, things like a company like Bunch is doing could have a reasonable, you know, universe, particularly for the demographics that are coming up, like the people in the, you know, call it like the 13 to low 20s range. Mm-hmm. But for what we were doing at PlexJet, no, nah, I think I think that was that was done. Yeah. And so what did, two, two follow-up questions. One, what did WB see in PlexChat at the time? And then two, does PlexChat exist in any form at WB? Or what Like, what was the sort of post-acquisition future of PlexChat? Yeah, when I, when I talked about selling PlexChat, a mm-hmm. lot of the conversations I had were with companies that had portfolios. Mm-hmm. And the conversation was, like, was essentially, listen... Getting a deeper relationship with your customer is likely to be the future. Mm-hmm. And at this time, a lot of people were very focused on on like being very inwardly focused, yeah, like very inward yeah. strategies, right? Mm-hmm. Or there weren't like portfolio level strategies. There were some, right? But the all out embracing of like a company like Discord or Twitch, that really that wasn't common across all portfolio mm-hmm. companies. And I believe pretty strongly you could push it much further than what people were doing. Mm-hmm. So essentially what we pivoted FlexChat more towards was, hey, like here are like a set of community tools in a way that you can manage you know, a, an, an ecosystem around it. And so I think the interest from WB was like leaning more into a portfolio community strategy. You know, I think part of it was the team that we had. When I joined, it was to you know, sort of run and build player network plus uh, central product management and a bunch of other stuff over mm-hmm. time. And, you know, versions of what that team built were, you know, worked with, working with the central technology teams, those sort of sit at the the player network level now. So that feels, that feels cool. I'm glad that there is value out of it. You know, I think it's really fascinating for me to be at a company of that scale with yeah. that amount of resources, which not not my usual so yeah wb's games business is really interesting right like i think now yeah most people are aware of sort of just like the scale of that business but wb games has actually been one of the largest gaming businesses for like several years you know and i think most like mainstream people when they think about big gaming businesses wb games at least you know, until recently, probably wasn't coming to mind. Now with games like, you know, Hogwarts Legacy, Multiverses, you know, those games are like more mainstream hits. But that that business has been like really, really strong for several years. You know, there have been a number of rumors of like acquisition interest, you know, for, for many years now. So it's a really interesting business. But actually, what were you working on at WB when you were there? So my original role focused on central product management, which include like, you know, how, how do we build a player network strategy? What do we want to think about in terms of like building out live services as a long-term, because I come from like pretty much a pure services background, mm-hmm. you know, WB is an interesting blend of what I would consider like traditional AAA premium, high quality experiences from mm-hmm. studios like Rocksteady or, you know, congratulations to the, you know, the folks out in Salt Lake City for Hogwarts Legacy. Yeah. Like that was a huge triumph, but a pretty impressive, like, 
you know, evolution of that studio, you know, studios like Monolith. That's mm-hmm. that's what I would consider the core premium background. Like, let's not forget Mortal Kombat, mm-hmm. like Ed and Sean, pretty interesting and incredible yes, people to interact with. To interact with. Yeah. yeah. Like they're like they're they're actually fun to yeah. hang out with. <laughs> they're they're good, they're good people. Then there's the mobile side of the business, mm-hmm. and there's sort of the emerging cross-platform side of the business that you see in Multiversus. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a combination of a number of different things. And part of my responsibilities were thinking about central product management, how you build that up as a discipline, how you spread more of that service level knowledge across you know, the ecosystem. And then over time, there will just evolve to have more things within it. I worked directly for Steve Chang, who is now the president of Fortis. Yeah. You know, he and I worked really closely on. Hey, you know, how do we how do we keep pushing this portfolio forward? And you know, it's it was challenging, right, to mm-hmm. go from being acquired to AT and T to now being a part of Discovery. You know, that's a that's a pretty complicated set of events yeah. for uh, you know a company to go through. And I think the interactive division, you know, I think they've done really fantastically, despite you know, all the noise on the environment sometimes. And then, you know, as you mentioned before, you typically haven't spent much time at large companies. So at what point, you know, were you like, look, it's it's time for me to get back to my roots and and start something again? Yeah, I, I'm probably a bit of outdoor cat by mm-hmm. nature. I think that there might be just something that kind of drives me to keep on trying to build things mm-hmm. with, and, and try to maximize for a certain amount of like, agency in doing so. And so for... WB, I think that they they know what they're doing and where mm-hmm. they want to go with it, right? And I don't know how useful I am unless mm-hmm. you want to change a bunch of things, right? Sometimes. And so I think it came down to looking at how I wanted to spend my time and where I wanted to spend my time. And I naturally began to gravitate towards, well, maybe I should, should do another thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I start thinking that way, then it tends to happen. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I, I think it became pretty much a foregone conclusion. But I will tell you that that entire time I was there, they treated me really well. Like there were good people there trying to build good games. Mm-hmm. And I think they were far more tolerant of me than they, <laughs> they, you know, they had cause to be. And yeah. I, I still really admire the people that are out there building things. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it's a, a great company, great business. But yeah, let's let's talk about Fortis. So, you know, Fortis, from an outsider's perspective, I think is really interesting. You know, obviously a strong management team. You guys put some content out as far as like, you know, blogs and your thoughts on everything as far as like, well, I'll, I'll let you dive into it, right? But one thing I want to ask you about, right, is in one of your blogs, you wrote about Fortis being a design lane company. You know, you've talked a lot about the value of design and innovation. And so just to, to kick things off, what does it actually mean to you that Fortis is a design lane company? And why is this so important to the company? You always need a narrative when you start a company. Mm-hmm. Right? You need some way to quickly explain what you are and why people should care. And certain things are easier to explain and certain things are harder to explain. Mm-hmm. Like you know, if we said we're Uber for video games, no one really knows what that <laughs> means, right? Like no one really can understand what you're trying to say. Yeah. But there are some well-trodden narratives in our industry that have a lot of currency with investors, right? Mm-hmm. 
most recently, you know, it's AI yeah. before that, it was Web3, mm -hmm. you know, before that, it's metaverses, mm -hmm. VR, esports, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're always trying to say, hey, listen, this trend that you already have bought into, here's this thing that I'm contributing to this trend. And since you're a believer in this trend, you should make an investment in me because you want good coverage over this trend right. because it's definitely going to be the next thing. And if you miss out on me, you're going to feel terrible, yeah. right? Like mm -hmm. don't make don't make the mistake of not having a little bit and everything. And I think there is a powerful like narrative relationship that happens there. DC side, I think that those well-trodden narratives tend to dominate how fundraising works. Mm -hmm. And the narratives tend to be fairly narrow mm -hmm. of like what you can say and how you can say it in order to produce an outcome, mm -hmm. at least if you're serious about raising money. And I don't really object to that. Like yeah. I, they have LPs, you need to explain to the pension fund why you're putting a bunch of money into JPEGs, mm -hmm. fine, right? Like that doesn't bother <laughs> me as like a way that the unit, you know, like, like, like the, the universe needs to exist yeah. and work. Right. Like there's reason why VCs exist as intermediaries. There are reasons why certain pitches are effective. Like all fine. Publishers, same thing. Large scale publishers, they need to work with scale. They don't want to take a lot of risk with their brand. So they're generally looking for a sure thing that is made more sure by the fact that they are strong at marketing and strong with their brands. Right. All makes sense. The thing that is left out in all of this is the amount of value that is generated out of the creative processes and games themselves. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about design as a core competitive advantage, there is not an investment lane that is well-defined against design ideas. There's mm -hmm. an investment lane that is well-defined against teams. And those teams may have a design idea, but ideally that a design idea maps to an existing pattern right. that people recognize the idea that trying to build a company around competing and design advancement in our case core system design that is not a narrative that has currency mm -hmm. and so we went looking for contrarians like people that would view the industry differently or be open-minded about it and would be willing to bring you know the right sort of support to make it happen and through the process of pitching with steve you know we found a handful of people that were were actually interested in this approach. And then it became a question of like alignment and principles, values, goals, right? Like how to approach the topic. And you know, we selected the partner that we thought would would make the best, you know, the best supporting platform for that. We didn't know where it was going to lead us. Mm -hmm. I was fairly certain that the pitch would fall flat. The pitch fell flat with mm -hmm. let's say 95% of the people that we spoke with mm -hmm. for reasons that are exactly what I talked about yeah. in terms of pattern recognition. I'm, you know, I don't know, I'm not bitter, like mildly, right? Like mildly <laughs> annoyed because some yeah. of these are people that I really, really liked mm -hmm. and I would have loved to work with, but I understood that what we were asking to do was just not, not within the rules, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it worked out all, all in the end, but definitely an interesting journey. Yeah, this is something I've thought about a ton because I, you know, both wear a gamer hat you know, and, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm a venture partner at Griffin, was previously an investor there, right? So I've worn, obviously, an investor hat for many years, you know, even before that. And so, you know, with my gamer hat on, you know, and I, I still, I talk to you, obviously, I have a lot of friends in the industry, but also friends that are just gamers in general. They also share the sentiment that in a lot of ways, it feels like, you know, innovation in the industry has sort of slowed. It's hard to remember a lot of examples in recent years of like brand new design concepts of games that are really, really good, 
hit high ceilings and then last for a long time. You know, often what you've seen is they hit a really high ceiling, but then they have a, a brutal crash. You know, you can think, I mean, Among Us at the time, I think was pretty innovative. Splitgate, you know, I had the CEO of, of 1047 on. You know, I, I absolutely loved that game. Played it a ton. Knockout City, brand new play pattern. I had the president of that company on my podcast. Absolutely loved that game. You know, I was playing it a ton. I was actually playing with some top streamers. So that community fell as well. And so when, when you think about all of that, is it possible that as the gaming industry has matured, you know, people are kind of just like getting settled into these play patterns and it's a possibility that the consumers might not actually have enough demand, sustained demand for these new play patterns. So basically my question is, what gives you the confidence that this design lane approach can still succeed today? A lot of the examples that you might reference are often very small teams, mm -hmm. thinly resourced, that stumble across something really great. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets really excited, but that small team is three people. Yeah, They do not have the resources and the sophistication to sustain a modern live operations pipeline that keeps people highly engaged, mm -hmm. right? Among Us is a great example, right? Like, I mean, th that game had been out for 18 months. It wasn't yeah. like they were expecting. They're working on Among Us too, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's a small, I think impressive team that had made a cool experience, but mm -hmm. it wasn't like they were expecting to become huge overnight, right? They right. didn't plan on pandemics, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what would have happened if they had had a team of 80 on it? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. You know, like my guess is, is that it probably would sustain better because mm -hmm. there would have been more maps, there would have been more characters, more mm -hmm. styles, right? It got sustained a little bit by the modding community, or maybe it's just a flash in a pan, and that mm -hmm. one isn't supposed to last for forever. I don't know. I'm a little skeptical. Anytime <laughs> yeah. where I see hundreds of millions of people willing to play an experience, I tend to think that there is something to that experience. Mm -hmm. The question is, is how to evolve that experience in a way that it can sustain itself. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, tends to be a lot more about the contextual systems that that gameplay sits within. Mm -hmm. So... For us, I think you can make the exact same arguments about shooters before Battle mm -hmm. Royales came out. Oh, it's mature, it's Call of Duty, it's Battlefield every year, mm -hmm. maybe maybe Halo comes along every so often, but you know, it's a mature space. It's you know not really worth putting time and energy into. Mm -hmm. And it's a really compelling narrative because in most cases, saying something that's not, not going to change, you'll be right like 95% of the time. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to go for, for accuracy, saying that everything is mature, everything is stuck, nothing will ever change, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to seem brilliant by, by, <laughs> by having a pretty cynical view of the world. Right. Uh, I just don't think it's supported by the actual facts. Like Battle Royales did exist. Mm -hmm. It just took them a while for them to get commercialized because it started out as a mod with no commercial yeah. framework associated with it. It went to a double A premium game for a period of time and mm -hmm. then it got blown out by you know, a cross-platform free-to-play experience. You know, when it became a service, mm -hmm. it sustained just fine. When it became a service with a body of people working to sustain it, no problem. Yeah. Right. Eventually extraction shooters will go the same path, right? Roguelites will go the same mm -hmm. path. Among Us will probably do it at some point. It will happen. And then everyone will say, well, yes, of course. Among Us, mm -hmm. that was the clear indicator that this was going to be a big thing at one point. You know, we always knew it. And, you know, like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. 
I, I see these like kind of narratives like bounce around. Like video mm -hmm. games are not mature. And the reason yeah. why video games are not mature is because the platforms and the technology that support them change so radically so quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it is, it is just a massive overhaul of the industry every five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I think the tricky part is that people think that that overhaul is often like a platform-based or mm -hmm. business-based overhaul. That's sort of like the VC approach. And I think it often is, Yeah. but it's also design a lot of the time yeah. that changes things, right? Like mobile was defined not by by the fact that it was a mobile phone is defined by the service model free to play, mm -hmm. which the stores absolutely did not support early on. There yeah. was no app store in-app transaction early on. That was not a thing, mm -hmm. right? Games figured out how to get there over time. And oh, lo and behold, it was design frameworks that made that all make sense and sustain itself, right? Like free to play is a set of design choices that enable a business model. It wasn't like people were sitting there and being like, what if we gave, this game away for free that's right. premium i bet that will work more it was more like what if we designed a game that was meant to be played for 10 years mm -hmm. and maybe we should give it away for free because if they're playing it for 10 years we could probably come out ahead right mm -hmm. and you know all these things kind of happen in conjunction with each other they're all interrelated but as a general matter we are going through an era where the forces that enable broad scope design advancements are just massively creating in the background, mm -hmm. right? We could talk about generative AI as a possibility, but we could just talk about the fact that almost everyone on the face of the planet has a phone now. Mm -hmm. We could talk about the distribution of, high, of, of like high bandwidth throughout a broad cross-section of the world's geography. I, I imagine you're somewhat familiar with this, Chris, <laughs> as right. you know, maybe there is a future that we have not contemplated yeah. for parts of the world that involve games. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone is very, very strong believer that that's yeah. not the case until it is the case. And the companies that sort of like thought, hey, maybe making content that might appeal to this group of people right? Mm -hmm. For example, like a green of free fire, yeah. something like that, where it can play on a low man spec, right? Maybe that could be an actual business and lo and behold, it is right. Mm -hmm. Like this stuff is incredibly vibrant. Yeah. But if you want to reduce it to a set of trends, you can say mobile is mature. Mm -hmm. You can ignore the fact that cross platforms coming up. You could ignore the massive demographic shift from the mm -hmm. beginning of the mobile era where it was 35 year old dudes playing in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. to the current era where it's 10 year old kids playing in Brazil, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you can ignore the like significant changes in uh, preferences, tastes, as things have evolved, the level of education of your average gamer. You can do all that stuff mm -hmm. and just say it's mature. And I'm like, you should definitely do that. I really don't <laughs> want much competition. I'm pretty happy to not have other people be funded, right? Yeah, so obviously I agree with you. I also think it's a very compelling argument that you're making, you know, even if, if I didn't <laughs> agree. But I did want to ask one more sort of devil's advocates question, right? And so... Another piece of this argument is that because the gaming industry is so large, you know, the incumbents are so, so powerful and so, you know, so have unlimited financial resources, et cetera, et cetera. And so to compete with these, you know, one might argue the budgets, not, and, and I'm putting mobile to the side for a second, right? I'm talking about mm -hmm. constant PC for now, right? One might argue the budgets to compete at this level and sustain something are so large that it might just be too risky to throw that much money beyond a new idea. What do you say to that? 
Oh yeah, I mean, I look at the average Roblox game and I say, oh, there's no way to compete on that that ecosystem. Like, 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 like it doesn't make any sense to yeah. me. The games that people are playing are not the highest fidelity games that cost right. $200 million all the time. Mm -hmm. They play them some, it's a business model. It's a segment of the industry. It's mm -hmm. a successful segment of the industry. It's amazing to play Hogwarts Legacy <laughs> and to see that. That's amazing. I played that game for two weeks and then I completed it. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, that was a great experience. I'm so happy. I can't wait for the first expansion. I'll buy that thing too, mm -hmm. right? Like I'll buy the, the, you know, the sequel to it. I'll buy Elden Ring, all of that. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, people's demand for games is massive. Mm -hmm. And the percentage of the population that plays games is increasing year over year, mm -hmm. right? As the demographics that grew up with games as a main part of their culture, move into the core of the buying audience, right? Mm -hmm. Like the number of 10 year olds with access to a sophisticated game playing device 15 years ago is radically different yeah. than what's available now or 12 year olds or 13 year olds, whatever, choose any age, mm -hmm. right? Accessibility has massively changed our industry. And so if the idea is like, well, you need $200 million to make a game, well, I don't think, I don't think Tarkov costs $200 million. Yeah. I don't think you know, Behaviors Game Dead by Daylight costs $200 yeah. million to make in the first instance. People seem to be pretty happy playing mm -hmm. them, right? Like I play any number of roguelites. Those are small studios, right? I play Loop Heroes. Four people, I think, worked on that, right? Mm -hmm. Devolver does great, great work at finding interesting stuff. Vileheim, that was like a $5, $10 million game, I think mm -hmm. they said it was to make, right? Like the design lane just keeps showing that it's there. Right. Mm -hmm. The issue is, is that no large publisher that can deploy two hundred million dollars wants to deploy something uh, two hundred million dollars on something speculative. Right. And they don't think that spending twenty million dollars on something is going to produce the outcome mm -hmm. that they want with any level of consistency. And they're not organized mm -hmm. as a company to actually consume that opportunity. Right. If you ask them as a large publisher to go out there and like bet on fifteen random teams <laughs> at ten million dollars a pop and hope something works, right? It's just not yeah. what they're they're set up to do, right? It's not, they're set for scale and God bless them. They're, they're you know, <laughs> I, I love playing their scale games. Like it's yeah. amazing. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. But when we talk about like the next generation of game companies that come out of the next thing, whatever mm -hmm. it is, let's say it's not even design. Let's say it's generative AI. I will bet you, I will <laughs> bet you $100 right now, Chris. <laughs> that those companies are not scale companies. I think the same about Metaverse as well. Maybe we can come back to that. There were a couple uh, more Fortis questions I want to ask you though. One is just as a gamer and as a fan, you know, obviously what you're saying is exciting to me, but there isn't much information yet in the public as far as what you guys are actually working on. Can you give any sort of like indication as far as like platform, you know, types of games you're working on, anything like that? Sure. So our our vision is games where you belong mm -hmm. and maybe not surprising given my long history of trying to figure out how to bring community and content closer mm -hmm. together. But for us, we're accessibility maximalists as a mm -hmm. result of that. Like we tend to think a lot about like how to get the game in front of as many people as possible. So we'll always be available on the phone and we'll always be free. 
the portfolio is more blended, which mm-hmm. is to say we'll do something that's cross-platform and we'll do something that's mobile only, right? A lot of it depends on where we think the audience is and how they want to play and what sort of like social contract they want to have between themselves, the game and the developer. And that tends to define this sort of nature of the systems that we think are relevant. On a broad level, we tend to be interested in any large audience with a similar motivation model that hasn't had a significant update to the core Mm -hmm. systems around the gameplay they like in five years or more. And I think that's as far as I'm willing to go (laughs) on the specifics, but that example I gave around Battle Royale is a reasonable one. Very large audience, not a lot of advancement in terms of core gameplay, the systems that exist around that core gameplay Mm -hmm. in a long period of time. And we would say there probably could be a number of things. So survival came out of that, you know, that that period. Battle Royale Mm -hmm. came out of that period. Extraction shooters are out of that period. All these genres have come off and built sustainable businesses. We think that there are a number of other examples of audiences that have been essentially like tidally locked Mm -hmm. inside of a single ecosystem for lack of um, differentiated alternative. And what about a timeline on a game or trailer? Mm, I guess it's like, you know, like we're, 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 we're chugging along. Like <laughs> how that maps to, uh, you know, how that maps, I'd say sooner, sooner than you would think. But, uh-huh. you know, like we, like, I don't want to, I don't want to put unnecessary pressure yeah. beyond what I'm already doing internally to the teams. Like I'm not the one who has to wake up every day and right, start right. these games and build them. Right. Uh, so, you know, when the announcements come, the timeline comes, like the teams, the teams get to drive that more than me. Awesome. So, you know, generative AI has come up a bunch in our conversation, you know, probably unsurprisingly, given the time we're living in, you know, every day there's a new thing about generative AI hitting the mainstream. And then obviously like for folks on the more technical side, you know, I'm sure they're thinking about it a lot more than myself, but you know, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on it. Has the proliferation and just all the focus on generative AI recently impacted how you are thinking about building Fortis? Speaking generally about generative AI and mm-hmm. AI, I have a very simple maxim for whether or not I care about something in the industry, mm-hmm. which is as the accessibility of the thing goes up and the cost of developing for that thing goes down, the odds that it will be successful in games goes up. Yeah. Right. So take like Web3. I'm not a big web three person, not because I don't think it's interesting, not because I don't care about it, Mm -hmm. not because I don't think that there could be a thing there. It's just, it's a great example of accessibility low, cost of developing on it also like high, like Mm -hmm. doing that well is high. Therefore, small opportunity. Same thing for metaverse, same thing for esports. Like, you know, I go to League of Legends, you know, tournaments and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and watch them, right? Like I'm a big fan, but right, like, the cost of creating that content and doing it well, right? It's just high cost doing it well, low audience, right? Mm-hmm. Though I think 100 Thieves is doing a pretty reasonable job of making a, you know, a liar out of me uh, with what <laughs> they've been doing around building their brand. So mm-hmm. when it comes to generative AI, is 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 accessibility high or low to the average consumer? I think high. That's right. It's very high. It's yeah. Fine. You know, oh, like yeah. a little like, yeah, you know, go into the Linza app and I was like, oh, cool. I look like a robot in this one. And oh, look, like, oh, you know, I look 
look at that chin. I look amazing, right? Like it's I mean, fine, right? I remember I go, even before this stuff got like super, super mainstream where it was, you know, maybe like a year or so ago, you know, as I was starting to be exposed to some of this stuff, just playing around with like some of these, mm -hmm. like type in a couple words and you can get new art. That stuff to me, I'm not like an artist at all. I, I spent, you know, well over an hour just like playing around with, with different uh, options. I've been playing around with them for, ways over a year yeah. now you know i i've been going deep on like the the research and the history of how we got to here just to mm -hmm. try to understand it better but listen the accessibility is high it's fun yeah right it's fun to interact with it's fun to type things into chat gpt it's fun mm -hmm. right cost of making something on it is low yeah is it going to be big yeah i think it's gonna be big mm -hmm. is it gonna be good for the industry i don't know gonna be good for some people terrible for others right like i think what it is is like it's a step function in sort of a process that's been occurring pretty much since the industrial revolution mm -hmm. right which is like the value of an hour of like manual knowledge right like just declines over time uh you know so a person who's invested thousands of hours into being a craftsperson you know they, they, they've they been taking it on the chin for the better part of a few hundred years now right mm -hmm. you know as we've automated as we've done stuff and this is just a massive advancement in that and i think it has really dramatic impacts on all sorts of of people i do not think it stops i do not think there is a way to stop it so you know then we get into sort of apocalyptic fatalism about <laughs> it all but like you know i am of the mindset that that technology once uh, unbottled is quite difficult to bottle and yeah. I don't see this slowing down. And so you can either figure out how to adapt to it, think about how you're going to work with it, you know, how you're going to make the most of it, or, you know, you can, you can try a different path, but I'm not so sure the different path is going to be successful. Yeah. It's really interesting. So I don't usually take, make super, super hot takes on this podcast when it comes to gaming <laughs> predictions, though not in the gaming realm. I, I could see some of this stuff being restricted within like the political field. I think some of this technology and like just some of the stuff that you can create as far as like making it look like, you know, some candidate did or said something can have a dramatic impact on people. So I could see it being restricted from there. But I, I, I agree with you overall on just like the impact that it's going to have specifically on just being able to create a lot of new art uh, extremely quickly and the implication as far as like costs and timelines. I think there are interesting like possibilities mm -hmm. on how things move from here. I think the accessibility of the thing is part of the, part of what makes it more likely that it may attract attention for mm -hmm. regulatory bodies for the exact reason that you sort of like said, I have no idea. Yeah. And my response is generally, listen, this is a thing that exists. That's probably going to have some impact. It's unlikely to change outside of some sort of, you know, externality coming in mm -hmm. like a regulatory body. And until it changes, it's sort of, you either embrace it or you don't, right? I think a lot about the transition from like AAA to like free to play. Like mm -hmm. there are a lot of people that just fundamentally just did not love that transition yeah. inside of the industry. And I was like, I totally get it. But the reality is, is that free is an incredibly powerful <laughs> price point. It is. You know, it's My favorite really, one. really powerful. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I don't like we can debate it. We can talk about, about you know the benefits or or negatives. I, I you know to your blue in the face. I just don't. Yeah, it doesn't matter. 
Mm -hmm. right? Like it, it is what it is. And so I tend to be very aspirational in goals, but extraordinarily pragmatic about mm -hmm. how I go about pursuing them. And this is one of those examples of, I don't know if it's for better or worse, in certain areas, I think it's pretty clearly for the worse. In certain mm -hmm. areas, it's probably pretty clearly for, you know, for the better. I don't know how it all weighs out. I want to think about it as we continue moving forward. But mm -hmm. ultimately, we're going to have to move forward. Yeah. Okay. And then on Web3 and the Metaverse, you know, you just mentioned both in passing. We don't have to dive super deep into these, you know, we, they've been, unless you want to, but they've been discussed, you know, a ton over the last couple of years. But on the accessibility and cost pieces and your view on the potential of Web3 and the Metaverse, are these short-term calls or longer term calls? So let's take the metaverse mm -hmm. as an example. There's any number of ways that we can we can define the metaverse, but let's let's say for all for my definition, mm -hmm. it's a virtual existence that has real and true meaning that a person wants to occupy and maybe wants to occupy as much as they occupy their real existence or more. Mm -hmm. Right. Let's just say that's what it is. The preconditions for a person to feel that way on any level of scale are really substantial and run through an incredible investment in content, mm -hmm. right? Like billions and billions yeah. of dollars of investment in content that make a person really want to spend that amount of time there. And so you know, when it came time for the Xbox to be launched, they went really aggressive mm -hmm. on that content. They invested a lot of money. They, you know, Halo exists for a reason and mm -hmm. it's not for vanity, right? Yeah. Um, it's to give a reason for a person to want to buy an Xbox, you know, rather than a PlayStation, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that exists in the metaverse too, right? Like over some timeline, will a digital existence continue to expand? Yeah, probably. I don't, I don't see why not. It mm -hmm. certainly has so far, right? But if you want to get to the point where a person wants to be fully immersed completely and sort of indefinitely, I, I it, it runs through content. Mm -hmm. And I don't see anyone making anywhere close to the level of content investment I would expect to get to that outcome. Does it change over some timeline? Sure. Sure. I, I don't know what that timeline is. Maybe the cost of content comes down so significantly through you know tooling and stuff like that. Like on some timeline, how about this? On any given day, saying no, something's not going to happen on a short timeline, you'll see brilliant. But saying yes, something is going to happen on an infinite timeline, you also seem brilliant, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's the question is the timing on when. And, you know, I was asked about VR, mm -hmm. I don't know, nine, 10 years yeah. ago when it was like all the rage for the first round of funding at a conference. And I got into like a fairly sticky discussion where I was like, it's clearly not happening in the yeah. next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And everyone was deeply offended by my <laughs> viewpoint because they were investing in it. And I was yeah. like, and they're like, well, why are you so sure? I was like, no one has stepped up and said, here's my headset and here's the $4 billion content mm -hmm. fund to support it. And until I see that, I don't see any reason to believe that anyone other early adopters are really going to get into it. So that's kind of like similar to how I think about Web3. Mm -hmm. Web3 is, you know, if we talk about digital collectibles and all the different like attempts to kind of brand these things in different ways, like if we just say Web3 is an argument that ownership has inherent value and people will value that ownership highly, mm -hmm. right? And they'll value that more than alternatives. My immediate question is how many DVDs have you bought recently? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like ownership has some value. It's content. Mm -hmm. You can resell it, blah, blah. All the arguments apply, but everyone just everyone just has a streaming subscription. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Well, it's because ultimately the sense of ownership is significantly 
less valuable to the vast majority of humanity compared to the ease of playing the thing, the like the price point of the mm -hmm. thing, right? So you run into a bunch of barriers that essentially makes it a very deep experience for a narrow group of people, right? Like I look at Eve Online, which I played for a fairly reasonable period mm -hmm. of time, very deep experience for a fairly narrow group of people. Mm -hmm. And that's how I tend to view Web3. Most people that play online, you know, they play League of Legends or whatever, they think, you know, as far as they're concerned, they own their account. The fact yeah. they can't resell it doesn't matter because they never want to resell it because mm -hmm. it always goes for a lower price than what they paid for it. And it's very difficult to maintain the floor mm -hmm. on investment without creating a very high amount of scarcity, which then also narrows your audience mm -hmm. significantly like this problem is an incredibly complicated game design problem mm -hmm. orders of magnitude more complicated than running your standard free-to-play ecosystem and i think generally people have not appreciated exactly how complicated that design problem is for both free-to-play and for web3 free-to-play is very difficult mm -hmm. to do well and i would say very few companies do it really really mm -hmm. well and the number of companies that understand web three design, like how to create real mm -hmm. value and manage like liquidity and social settings. It's one of the most complicated areas of game design in existence, like that I can think yeah. of. Mm -hmm. And I generally do not think that the ecosystem is like well suited to support yeah. that degree of effort to create that thing. Right. It gets into all these like, like how do you think about transportation costs between locations that have a low marginal cost per yeah. hour, right? Mm -hmm. So like that's like Axie Infinity, mm -hmm. like play to earn. Like the problem is, is that it sets the value of the hour yeah. at the, you know, you know, the lowest common hour, right? And the issue is, is that no one in the United States wants to play to earn anymore, yeah. right? Because like they value their time at more than, you know, a dollar an hour yeah. or whatever the, the, mate, or the rate actually gets set mm -hmm. at, right? So then, well, what do you do about that? Is it not play to earn in the United States? It's just invest to earn. Is that the only way that it works there? And these people exist in the same ecosystem. So what does that look like, yeah. right? And then you come in with like middlemen with like scholarships and stuff like that. And I get all the stuff that's happening yeah. and I see how it is. But the real issue is that the game design just doesn't support the economy because you're essentially trying to duplicate a real world mm -hmm. economy. Closest I've seen is EVE Online, yeah. how they manage like the star systems and the mineral deposits in order to basically create some level of churn, reason for conflict, right? Like it's a very complicated thing to do well. And I would say it's beyond me, though I would I would love to spend a year thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then on esports, short term call or long term call? You know, obviously, similar to VR, esports is a space where for many years, you know, it's just like lots of people are interested in this. In theory, the business model will catch up. And then, well, I guess it's a little different. VR, the install base didn't really catch up. But for esports, there was the, the, the viewership and then the business model would just catch up over time, you know, and then like if you get a fraction, of dollars spent per viewer as you do in sports and esports is huge. You know, obviously that was like the, the thesis for like a decade and then that never played out. And we've seen recently what has happened to some large esports companies. So is your call negative short-term and long-term on esports as well? I think esports suffers from the split between the teams that play the sport mm -hmm. and the owner of the sport itself which doesn't exist in other forms of sports in the same way, right? Like the NFL owns the NFL, the teams mm -hmm. own the NFL, they own the thing, right? 
And what happens is, is that creates a unity of interest between the people that are running the sport and the people that are basically playing the sport, right? Mm -hmm. It's tough in esports because the platform, the people that run the game have an incentive to consistently change the game, update it, modify it. And the margins that they get off of like a virtual good is very high. Yeah. Right. And I think esports contributes to some level of retention and engagement, but it's relatively low compared to, you know, the entire audience that's playing mm-hmm. that particular game. Right. And I think esports suffers from like a lack of context. Like, people need to understand why a thing is impressive and it's Mm -hmm. like kind of hard to understand why something is impressive in a lot of games unless you've played the game or a similar game before if i watch someone play basketball and they shoot a shot from behind their head at the half court and swish it i'm like i'm generally aware what my body is capable of doing and the difficulty of me landing like a wadded up piece of paper and a trash bin three feet away like i can immediately understand knowing almost nothing about basketball it's rules or something like that but that feat is impressive watching i do like a flip over someone else into the end zone is like impressive right watching someone get a pentakill in (laughs) league of legends is impressive to me as a league of legends player harder to impress upon someone in passing when they aren't already previously interested in Mm -hmm. that thing so I think it makes it harder to like acquire people into the sport. Like you can't show them a clip and be like, dude, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. But you can show them a clip of basketball and be like, oh my God, like I would love to try that. I would like to try to shoot a basketball hoop. Like yeah. you know, you know, every kid like watches the sports star and they're like, there's, then they're kicking the ball against the, you know, their garage door like 20 minutes later because they're going to be the next great soccer player. Mm-hmm. It is harder to accomplish that same outcome in esports, And all of these things I think tend to narrow the business. The thing that I missed that people like the folks over at 100 and Thieves, or if you talk to someone like Jens Hilgers over at Bitcraft, mm-hmm. who's been in the game for a long time, that, that they saw was it can be the source of a lifestyle of mm-hmm. a brand that people find aspirational. And that audience that is there for that brand that it, like, cares about it, that's invested into the brand and the lifestyle that it represents can actually make for a pretty meaningful and potentially scale business. And I'll be frank with you, when I was making that judgment call, I just did not, I did not Mm. see that, right? Like, I guess I was just too used to like games being like mildly disdained by by the common universe that like, why would you ever wear a t-shirt, you know, expressing (laughs) the fact that like, you're part of this insular group of people that are like, you know, focused on this strange hobby for nerds. Like the fact that it's moved into the mainstream and that can create that aspirational brand platform I didn't see that. And I think there's real value yeah. to be, be had out of that. And I tend to like watch it and admire it and feel like, you know, I feel like I missed something that, that other people saw. I think it'll be cool to see how that plays out, you know, because as gaming has gotten so mainstream, you know, and I also come from the era where like being a huge, huge gamer was, you know, not something that you didn't share with people as openly yeah. as today. And so, you know, I don't know, I don't, I don't have kids or anything. Yeah. You know, I don't know if like, you know, the popular teenagers in high school are wearing like, you know, 100 Thieves shirts or whatever. Um, but I could definitely see a world where that is increasingly the case. And on the the viewership example, I think you make a fantastic point, right? Overwatch and Blizzard obviously is like, we're one of the major examples of a company that wanted to own the league in the way that you mentioned with traditional sports leagues. But one of the big challenges with Overwatch is if you, and I've played a lot of Overwatch and I've watched Overwatch at a high level, but if you don't play Overwatch and you watch 
high level overwatch it literally just looks like stuff is like flying on the screen and you have absolutely no idea like what you're looking at so i definitely agree on like the the accessibility to a even experienced viewers but definitely to a new viewer just isn't there for most games as more and more people are gaming and again this is just like another you know like in your crystal ball question but do you see a world where people have an understanding of how difficult gaming is such that that changes or because gaming is so vast and uh, sort of diverse, do you think that's just impossible? I think it is difficult to understand the input requirements and why it is impressive, even mm -hmm. if you have some exposure or experience to it. Like if I'm a first person shooter player mm -hmm. and I see a, a, a just a, a video of someone getting a pentakill in league. I don't really know. Like I have more context than someone might have 15 years ago or right. whatever, but I still don't really know how impressive that was. Mm -hmm. Right. And it doesn't immediately, I think, create an aspiration the same way that, you know, watching a sports star in a stadium of 50,000 people does. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean that's like a non-starter. It's not really that argument. Like I think that like the demographic shifts are powerful yeah. and important. And I think we'll, continuously increase the audience for all of this i think that it is tough for the esport to really thrive because the marketing of the esport to that broader group of people doesn't actually have that much value to the owner of the esport who's using esport as a retention mm -hmm. vehicle as opposed to an acquisition vehicle yeah right so if they're looking at it as retention that from their perspective it's much more like hey how do i keep people engaged yeah. so that they'll keep on buying the skins that have the right margin that i want to have mm -hmm. right using esports as the acquisition vehicle it's actually like fairly cost yeah. ineffective compared to just running ads in a different mm -hmm. format for people that it might be you know interested so like those math problems yeah. i think sit there at the core the fact that like the waterfall of like how revenue gets split and all those types of things is different than when mm -hmm. there's unified ownership i think also creates its own set of complications you know does do i do i think like esports are going to die or something no i yeah. no Right. But if you ask me, do I think it's you know really possible to generate like a multi-billion dollar business off of like a, an esports team? Like, you know, when I was originally asked these questions, when esports kind of yeah. became a lot more popular 10, 11 years ago, mm -hmm. um, you know, around league and that type of mm -hmm. stuff. I, yeah. I was like, no, I don't really see it. Right. Like, I don't, I don't really see it as a, as, as being a venture investable vehicle. I think I was wrong about that. I think mm -hmm. that like there were enough exits that were multiples that made sense. It's one of those things of like scale, yeah. right? Like I was like, hey, can this be like a giant multi-billion dollar affair? You know, and I thought not. I think maybe the brand lifestyle thing might change that. Mm -hmm. It's possible. I'm not so like, I don't know how like 100 Thieves yeah. compares to like Kylie Jenner's like makeup line, <laughs> yeah. right? In terms of like audience sizing and, and value per person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are the sorts of comps that I kind of get curious about if I'm going to think about about the opportunity. Awesome. I mean, I think we went probably deeper there than I expected, but I think it's great. And I think you brought up a lot of really interesting business questions on the business of esports. But you know, just shifting gears and as sort of a concluding question, you know, you've been in the gaming industry for a long time. You've accomplished a lot. You know, but clearly there's there's more that you're working towards. And so looking forward, 
you know, what do you want your impact to be on the gaming industry and what do you want to accomplish for the rest of your career looking forward? So on a personal level, I care a lot about expanding the distribution of opportunity in the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, so like we're global and remote at Fortis and that's mm-hmm. partly because we found in the pandemic, but we basically said, listen, this is just a temporary thing or are we going to lean into it as mm-hmm. our core model? And we leaned into it as our core model, one, because we think it makes business sense, and you know, two, because the founders believed in, in, in that as an opportunity and you know, were emotionally aligned around pursuing it. You know, so from, from my side, there are, there, there are a lot of impressions around where a game can get made and who can be successful at making a game and mm-hmm. uh, who should get capital to make those games. And I tend to not actually think it lines up that well with where success is being created, particularly for emerging game types, mm-hmm. right? So like Tarkov that was made in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the first battle royale, you know, like you know, how it's kind of scaled out, right? Like, like you know, that, that was built on a platform that wasn't made in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's all of these different examples of where I think there's some like very strong reasons to believe that talent is evenly distributed across the world, yeah. but opportunity isn't. So when we founded Fortis, part of that was like, can we lean into that and find places where Fortis could be the best place to work? Right. So you know, we're, we would like to do that done in Brazil, we're in Romania, we're in like, Portugal. You know, like I think generally like, the people that we see that come on board, they're excited to work with them. I'm mm-hmm. motivated by it. If we could get to some shift in some of the mentality in the industry, I'd find like I'd feel like my like I'd feel really good about it. The other part is. I think the industry was built around a group of people that felt ostracized and they viewed mm-hmm. games as an escape. And that was what I grew up with. And mm-hmm. that was like true of me, right? Yeah. Like I felt like my people were online mm-hmm. and they weren't necessarily in my day-to-day life. And as the rest of the universe took notice of games and decided that they like it too, that ecosystem expanded really mm-hmm. significantly. But the people that were formed the sort of core of it back in the 90s, I don't think everyone has sort of adjusted well. Yeah. Right. And so I think games have suffered from a fairly tragic set of interactions that have made the universe like a bit more toxic than mm. than I think really, you know, we, we should be aspiring yeah. for something better than where we're at. Right. Mm. And I think that's part of it is the psychology of the people that are using games for escape versus the psychology mm-hmm. of people that are using games as just a fun, lightweight way of social mm-hmm. platform, the interactions between them and all these things. But what it comes back to is like games in my mind are one of the few lingua francas that humanity has. It's mm-hmm. one of the few things where if you put 10 people from 10 backgrounds, tell them the rules of something, they can start playing together mm-hmm. and they can start building friendships and bonds, even if they don't even speak a single word yeah. together. I think it's incredibly powerful as a unifying force. It's disappointing that it's become such a, whatever, a non-unifying force is, fragmenting Mm -hmm. force online. I would like to find ways to structure communities that are more positive, that encourage more people from more backgrounds to play together and to have a good experience doing so. You know, that's that belonging side of what Fortis is. Again, aspirational goals, very pragmatic about how I'm going about these Mm -hmm. things, but ultimately you know, that goal sits near and dear to my heart, right? Like I know what it's like to not feel like you, you fit in fully. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think that 
just because you feel that way doesn't mean you have to torch the universe right. around you. But, you know, I spent some time doing that back in my 90s, mm -hmm. right? I wasn't very productive online sometimes. Yeah. So I, I think I learned a lot from that. Like a lot of growth came from that. A lot of growth came from the people that I was interacting with, like you know, saying, hey, listen, you're 14 now, but one day you're <laughs> going to be an adult and like yeah. the things you say matters. And those are like, like those are powerful lessons for me mm -hmm. that I learned online in games, you know, mm -hmm. places like Ultima Online and text-based MUDs. So I think that games can be, you know, uh, a place for a larger group of people to belong. I'd like to spend my career making that more likely to be true. That'd be great. I think we could go another hour off of what you just said, but for the sake of time, you know, I'm going to cut it there. This was a great conversation, Sean. Thanks for joining me and I'll be following you going forward. Well, I appreciate you reaching out, Chris. I wish you, you know, Carrie first, uh, you know, the best of luck. And uh, next time you're hanging out with Griffin, tell Phil I say hi. He's Will great. do.